Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for those that are here tonight, that you will just bless us and give us what you'd have us to learn from this section of Scripture, and that you'll guide and lead, and we just thank you in your Son's precious name. Amen. Joshua chapter 5, we're going to be starting in verse 10. If you remember last uh, Sunday we talked about the children of Israel just crossed over the river Jordan through the miracle and the very first thing they did instead of going to war is they circumcised all the men and couldn't fight for a couple for a period of time. So they, they, they were in pain they were in pain so you know and we just kind of brought up you know it's you know God keeps doing these things that seem so kind of strange to us you know here they are they crossed in the land they're supposed to be ready to fight and the first thing they do is make themselves inca- incapable of fighting. Uh, and no, I'm sure they did not. Uh, it was a painful event. So, verse 10. And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening in the plains of, of Jericho. And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover, unleavened cakes and parched corn in the selfsame day. So the, first, the second thing they do is they have Passover. And we're going to find out that this is something they have not been having in the wilderness. They didn't hold Passover in the wilderness. 40 years. 40 years. So it's, it's kind of a strange event. You've got Moses who gave them all the laws, who showed them how to do all these things. And then for 40 years, then he goes, at the end of 40 years, he tells them all the stuff they're going to be doing. But he hasn't been, they haven't been practicing circumcision. They haven't been practicing all these all the feast days the way they're supposed to. And now we see Joshua establishing we're in the promised land. We're going to start following all of these, all of these rules that we're supposed to have been following all along. We're going to be circumcised. We're going to, we're going to do the Passover. And remember, the Passover is the commemoration of the passing over of the death angel over, the, over them so that the firstborn was not just not killed. It's a picture of the, the blood of Jesus Christ being shed for our sins because when they put the blood on the doorpost, they put it on each side, the top and on the bottom of the door, so you end up with a cross being formed on their door and the blood of the lamb and Jesus is the Passover lamb. I mean, there's all kinds of pictures that we talked about back when we talked about the Passover. But it, it's a huge picture of Jesus and we just the wonderful thing about when we get into the Old Testament is how much we see Jesus all over the Old Testament. And it's not like all of a sudden Jesus appeared and said, okay, I'm changing all the rules and everything, and here I am. He's been pictured all along. And so they, they had it, and they said they ate of the land's food. And so there's a change now. And then in verse 12, And the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna anymore, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So as soon as they crossed into the promised land and they started eating of the food of the promised land, God stopped supernaturally providing for them. And we've talked about this in many ways and times where the promised land Sometimes people think of the promised land, the crossing of Jordan, as, as entering into heaven. But the promised land was spiritual victory and spiritual life. Before, they were struggling in the wilderness. Everything was a struggle. And so many times as Christians, we like to live, for some reason, in the wilderness. God, don't bless me too much. I don't, I don't want these blessings. You know, we might not say it directly, but we live so often as if we're saying, God, don't bless me. Don't give me all these blessings. I, you know, I... I'm, I'm happy with you. And in one sense, there's a, there is a reason to stay in that struggled area because so many people, when they do get the blessings, forget God. They start giving, okay, God, I'm, I'm blessed. I'm okay. And they start thanking God, and the next thing you know, they forget God. And I've shown you, I've told this example so many times. You have somebody that is serving God and honoring God with their tithes and offerings. They're coming to church all the time. God blesses them, and they get a a quad or a boat or a, or a vacation house or an RV or something, the next thing, they're not in church anymore. And you call them up, well, yeah, I've just been in, enjoying, my, enjoying my stuff. Uh, and, you know, well, what happened to God? Well, you know, I got this nice stuff. I've got to, I've got to use it sometime. 
And, you know, and I've said this, you know, I probably would love to have a boat. I love being on the water and enjoying a boat, but I don't know when I'd ever use it because I'm so busy doing things with the church and work. So I guess God will have to give me a boat when I get to heaven so I can enjoy it in heaven. Did you have Saturday Sunday or Bible studies on the, on the uh, boat? On the boat? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we have a small church. I had a big enough boat. We could probably put the whole church on the boat. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> so I don't know what the visitors would end up doing you know, at the church, but... <laughs> But, but this happens so frequently that we oftentimes as Christians struggle in the wilderness and then when we do enter into the spiritual blessings, we kind of oftentimes will forget God. And if God knows that we're going to do that, he probably is going to hold back the spiritual blessings. Because you think about this, the children of Israel, what did they do for most of the 40 years? They murmured and complained about everything. And it seems like just before they crossed into the promised land, they started actually doing things right. They started praising God, and God started giving them victories over and over and over again. He started giving them victories. They, they, they beat three kings before they even crossed into the promised land. He shows them the victory of the, of the Jordan being split. And he's going to show them more and more victories all the way through. And, you know... Our memory verse for this month is rejoice in everything, give thanks for this, the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. We are to rejoice in everything. Why? Because God's in control. No matter what comes our way, God is in control and we need to give thanks. But you know, if you don't give thanks, the opposite is to murmur and complain. And murmur and complaining just brings on more things to murmur and complain about. Have you ever met somebody who they're never happy no matter what? I mean, they could probably win a million dollars and find some reason not to be happy because they'd be focused on the taxes and the, and the people with their hands out, you know, asking them for money, you know, and that's all they'd focus on. They wouldn't focus on whatever else, it, you know, they, they could do for, for God's kingdom or anything. They'd just be focused on all the negative parts of getting a million dollars. And there's certain people that are just that way, no matter what. And when you start murmuring and complaining about things, it really generates upon itself. You start looking at all the bad, everything that starts to be bad, and you start becoming Eeyore. Now, beautiful day, it's probably going to rain. Beautiful house, but it's going to fall down. You know, if you've ever seen the Winnie the Pooh things, you know, Eeyore was always, had always a negative thing, even when something good happened to him. But, you know, we do this so often, we start murmuring and complaining and griping, and all of a sudden we start looking at nothing but the negative side of things. If you start praising God for all the little things, and I'm not saying this is negative or positive thinking, but it just is what happens. You start praising God for what he's doing in your life, and you start thanking him for what's going on, and all of a sudden you start seeing the other things that he's doing in your life. You start seeing the other blessings that he brings you, and, and instead of just all the negatives that, that can be going on. And so the children of Israel have changed their thinking process just before they get into the promised land, and they're going to see all the victories. And they're going to start seeing some great victories as we go on into this story more and more. But the first thing God does is says, okay, we're not going to give you manna anymore. You're living off the blessings of the land. I brought you into spiritual prosperity. Here's your blessings. And you know, that's sometimes scary to get there when you get into nothing, when you start seeing just the spiritual prosperity and everything seems to be going your way. And then that's when a lot of people make their, their most Fatal error, they go, okay, when's it all going to end? You know, the blessings don't have to end. If we just keep focused and thanking God for what's going on, the blessings don't have to end. That doesn't mean bad things aren't going to happen to us. Because I've said over and over, bad things, when they hit us, it depends on our perception. And you'll note one of the words that I keep using is when things seem to be bad come your way. Because usually... They're not bad when you look back on them in, in retrospect and you look and say, oh, yeah, this is what happened or this is what I met this person or this person came into my life or God provided in this way or, you know, I, I learned a great lesson from it. And when we look back on the, what we consider bad, we go, oh, yeah, it wasn't really bad after all. So what we need to be starting to do is when we're in the middle of the, it's, we enter into these things, we go, God, thank you for this. I don't know what you're going to teach me on this, but I'm going to thank you in advance and let's go forward. And then you go through it. And I've shared with you many times, how many times have you been keeping your eyes focused on God and you go through something and you kind of look back and you go, wow, that was pretty messy back there. I didn't even notice the storm I went through. I've had that happen many times in my life where I kind of look back and go, 
wow, you know, all, the, all those things have been happening? But my eyes were focused on Jesus, just like Peter when he stepped out of the boat. His eyes were focused on Jesus. He walked on the water. The next, thing, next, sentence, the next uh, verse goes, he, looked, he saw the waves. He took his eyes off Jesus, saw the waves, realized that he couldn't walk on the water, and sank. Okay? And we do that quite frequently. We take our eyes off Jesus, realize that we can't be walk, you know, that we shouldn't be walking o over the top of all of our problems, and we sink down into our problems because we start thinking, well, you know, we just can't do this. And God's saying, keep your eyes on me. Walk above these problems. Cast all your cares in, on him, for he cares for you. No fears, no, no cares, because he is going to provide. So, so many times we kind of get this idea that, well, God, you just aren't going to provide. So I got to go out and do something myself. I've got to go worry about this because God, somehow you're just going to fail me. And again, when I say these words, I know that you're not, that none of us really actually say these words. But don't we really say that though in our actions? God, I've got to really worry about tomorrow because you just won't be able to provide for me. So I'm going to, I'm going to be worrying, worry, 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 worry. What am I going to do? How am I going to get the money? How am I going to do this? What's going to happen? And worry yourself sick. Things always will happen to us in our everyday life. They're, they're designed to draw us to God. Everything is designed to bring us to God. Can. It can. It can still be God putting, putting the problems in your, in your life to try to force you to come to him. Uh, some of them are heredity. Some of them are the way you were raised. But we can live above that by, by having our minds changed. We get into his word and he changes the way we think. He changes the way we act. He makes us a new creation, a new heart. When you first get saved and he starts taking things out of your life quickly, you know, because you're, say, you're saying, come in and, and change me. And, you know, we get to a certain place where all of a sudden we go, okay, God, You've changed all I'm going to let you change. And that's really what it amounts to. God, you've changed all that I'm going to let you change. I'm coming off the altar, and I'm not going to let you change me for a while. And then we live in misery. Because God still doesn't stop the test. And I've said this before. He's not like the school district who says, okay, you know, the public school with his classrooms. Okay, half the class understands what's going on. We've got to move to the next section. Whether the rest of you understand it or not, we've got to move on. And so now that side keeps getting further and further behind because they don't know the steps that lead up to it. Or you hold back the advanced students until, every, you, know, until you get you know, the bulk of the class, but there's always somebody who doesn't, doesn't get it. You're holding back some people, keeping forward. God has a personalized plan for you. When you pass the course, you pass the test, he takes you to the next test. If you flunk the test, you get to take the test over and over again until you finally pass it. And, you know, Abraham, when he was told to leave Ur of Chaldees, got to Haran and stopped for 20 years. I'm sure God gave him lots of tests for 20 years, saying, are you about ready to get up off your butt and get moving on the, on the road? You know, you brought your father, and I told you not to, and now you're stuck here with your father. You know, are you ready to get moving? So he finally had to kill his father so that he would be able to get up and do what he was supposed to do. Yeah. But God did not stop and say, okay, let's find something else for you to do because, you're, because you've stopped doing what you're supposed to do. And God will keep doing that with us. And it's, it's a very famous saying, and I don't know who said it first, but he goes, if you don't feel like you're hearing God, think back to the last time you heard him and make sure you're doing what he told you to do in the first place. Because he's not going to give you new instructions until you do the last thing you were told. You know, he's not going to say, okay, well, you didn't do the last thing, so let's add three or four more things to you to not do. You know, God's a little smarter than that. He goes, okay, I'm going to wait till you do the last thing I told you to do before he gives you other assignments to not do or learn to do. And we laugh about it, but isn't that really what happens? Mm -hmm. You know, you get somebody who hasn't done a job, when you give them another job, they don't do two jobs now. Mm -hmm. Unless you happen to give them something they really like, you know, but... That's not usually the way, way it works. They usually have two or three jobs they haven't done because they're just have that personality. They're not going to do their job until they're made to do one. I'm saying that's where I'm at. But I'm just curious. Like, 
for instance, if you didn't, if you can't remember what that was, how would you be a pass Ask God, truly ask God what it is that you're supposed to be doing, being ready to answer. But usually, if you really think about it, you should know what God has asked you to do, what the last thing God has asked you to do should be. But part of our problem is we don't usually involve God in all aspects of our life. God, I'm going to change jobs just because I think this job is better. We don't pray to God and say, God, is this a good move or a bad move? We just, I'm going to go do it. And then we find out, wow, it was a terrible, terrible, terrible move. Some I've, of us don't have that. <laughs> but once you're involved in that, how do you get past that? I mean, it's like, say you already made this decision. You talk to God and find out what it is, you know, and be ready to listen and move on whatever he says to do. Um, when I left Baltimore, it was to come someplace else. Now, I don't know that this was on the radar when I moved to Baltimore, but I don't know that Baltimore was a very good experience. A lot of bad things happened, but in the same process, I learned and l learned a lot from it. And this is the thing. No matter if you make a bad decision, God will still make something good out of what out of those bad decisions and well good for him good for him but usually usually you will learn something you will grow out of it you will gain you will gain something out of it as well i believe personally even though i keep mentioning is for all things work together for good and i say most people put for my good in there in reality if it's for god's good it's also for my good I just may not recognize it as being for my good. We don't see it the same way as he sees it. He says this is good. And if he says it's good, then in reality it probably is good for me. Uh, my, my example that, I've, that I use on that is you know, the six months I was on crutches. and you know, There was nothing good about being on crutches, but others were encouraged by watching me serve God even though it was obvious I, I was in pain. Now, was that good for me? I guess yes and no. I mean, I got to be an encouragement. So yes, was it you know, physically good for me? No, I was in a lot of pain for six months. Uh, and there was nothing good about being in pain. There's nothing good about losing a child or a spouse. But if you go through it faithfully with God, then you become an example and you become somebody who can talk to somebody else who's gone through or going through the same thing from an empathetic ear rather than just well you know okay I feel your pain you know well no I I don't know what it's like to lose a child I don't know what it's like to lose a spouse so even though I can cry with the person and try to empathize with them I'm not going to have the same compassion that somebody who's gone through that horrible terrible experience would have with that person and you know and it's the same thing you know with ministry uh, when we had the celebrate recovery out here it'd be so interesting because i'd talk to the guy that was leading it and he would say all the you know he was saying everything that i would say but it would be accepted from him because he had a past that involved alcohol and drugs so he had been where they were at and made it that they would listen to him even though i had all the truth and all the facts and and the right words Having not been there, there's always that, well, you don't even know what you're talking about. You're, you haven't been there. Even though the same words would have been coming out of my mouth. So God uses what we think of as really bad in our life to be used for the kingdom of God often. We just need to be ready to say, okay, God, you know, and my favorite statement is, God, I don't understand what's going on, but you're going to work it for good, so help me to stay at peace and acknowledge what's going on. And usually I do pretty good now in, in, through the problems. Not always, but usually I do pretty good. And I'm going, okay, God, don't understand it. Uh, five years ago, Lynn and I went down to a pastor, new pastor's convention and our car broke down in Tucson. Actually it broke down, started breaking down even before we got to Tucson. And yeah. We were in Phoenix and finally decided to give up the ghost in Tucson. And you know, all weekend long, everybody's asking me, well, what are you going to do? How are you going to get home? What are you going to do? And I go, I don't know. I've got, God's got all weekend to figure out all of this stuff for me. 
It was one of those times when I got it all right. You know, all these people worrying and worrying and worrying and worrying, and it's like, calm down, God's in control. And we called a friend up here. They drove all the way down with their flatbed trailer and took us, you know, picked us up and took us back home and, and wouldn't even take money for doing so. So, you know, God had his plan. What came out of that? I have no idea what all came out of it, but it was one for me, it was just, okay, God, you're good. You're going to make everything, you're going to make everything happen. You know, so when we are in these situations, what is our attitude? Am I focused on God saying, God, you are in control and it's going to be for good? may not seem like it's going to be for good, you know, and we will not know why it's going to be for good sometimes when we're in the middle of the trial because it's just a trial. It's a test, and tests are designed to make life difficult. Just plain, plain is. I mean, teachers like to say, well, this is your opportunity to show me what you know. You know, they try to put a positive spin, but a test is a test. If it's a real test, it is something that you're going to struggle with. Otherwise, it's not a test. My example is if you gave a high school student a, a test, math, here's your math test. One plus one is two, two plus two is four, three plus three is six. And you know, if you gave them that math test, they'd probably look at you and be asking you, uh, what's the catch? You know, what's the trick? This is not a test for a high school student. This is a test, might be a test for a kindergartner or a first grader, but for a high schooler or a junior high or even a upper elementary, that is not a test. When God gives us a test, it's going to be something that's going to stretch you. And you know what? You're, he's, it's going to seem like he's left you. Because when you're in the middle of a test, it's to see what you know, not what the teacher knows. That's my favorite answer at the, at the prison when somebody goes, well, what's the answer to this question? I'm going, uh, it's not my test, it's your test. I know the answer to these tests. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not to see how much I know. It's a chance for you to demonstrate how much you know. This is what happens when God gives us a test. It's an opportunity to show God, or actually show ourselves, because God already knows, show ourselves how much we truly believe. Because all of his tests are going to be, do you truly believe what you, what, what you believe? When we say that we believe that God is, is omnipresent, that he's everywhere present, and then we go out and we do something, and we, and we will say something like, well, I wouldn't do this if mom or dad saw me. God is there. <laughs> You're doing something in front of God that you wouldn't do in front of your parents? You know, if you think about that, you know, you basically you're saying, God, I don't believe you're omnipresent. You know, mom and dad, I wouldn't do it in front of them, but I would do it in front of you, God, because, well, God, I'm really not sure that you're here. God, I, I, you know, I really believe that you want us to tithe, but you know, God, things are really tight here, and I'm just not going to do it this month because the money's too tight. God, I really believe that you want me witnessing to these people, but God, I'm so afraid I'm not going to go witness to them. You know, do we truly believe what it is that we believe? God, uh, I know I'm supposed to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together and so much more as we see the day approaching, but uh, you know, I've got my my best friends coming to visit me uh, this, this morning and I can't drag them to church with me so I'm just going to stay home. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, you know, we got to look at this. Now, there may be a time to stay home with your best friend, you know, between, but you understand what I'm saying. We know what God says and then we have all these little excuses that says, you know, my best friend doesn't know I'm a Christian, obviously, otherwise they wouldn't, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll be offended if I ask them to go to church. Well, uh, I got news for you. Anybody who visits our house knows we're going to church Sunday. You know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and we really expect them to come with us because you're at my house. Uh, they know I'm going to go to church Wednesday night. They, you know, they probably don't know I go on Tuesday or Thursday night if they don't, unless, you know, unless they live in this area. But, but do you understand what I'm saying? You know, if we're afraid to do something in front of a friend, you know, what kind of... Christian stand do we have with that friend that they don't know that we're going to church on Sunday morning? Uh, there's got to be some kind of issue there. But, you know, I don't want to harp on that one. But, you know, I'm saying, you understand what I'm saying? Whatever it is that God's teaching you, the test is going to be, do you truly believe it? He's teaching you forgiveness, and guess what's going to happen? You're going to find somebody that's very hard to forgive or something's going to be done that's very hard to forgive. 
If he's teaching you to love some, somebody, they're going to do, you're, you're going to have the most unlovable person come across your path, or they're going to do something that makes them hard to love. You know, I can guarantee it. Whatever God is teaching you and whatever he's trying to bring into your life, be ready for the test. So, okay, God, <laughs> I'm ready. I'm going to be ready for this test. And the test will be at the level of your understanding. If you're just learning to be forgiving, the, the offense and the person will be a very kindergarten level test. If you're up at the university level of forgiving, oh, imagine the person, just imagine what's going to happen to you. You know, this is one reason why we can't stand in judgment of one another because something that would, would just devastate one person might not even be a problem. And you're looking, I'm like, well, what, what's your problem? That just doesn't, you know. But your test would have crushed that, would, would have killed them. So it's God knows what he's doing and he tailors the test to your level of understanding, your level of knowledge. So if you're a baby Christian, you're going to get something that a baby Christian can handle, somebody who's crawling. You know, but if you're somebody who's playing at the professional level, <laughs> then you're going to get professional attack, professional test, because God's going to say, this is something you should be able to handle. I'm not giving you a kindergarten test. You're, you're a high school, you're a college student. You're not getting a kindergarten test because that's not a test. You know, the example I've used many times is this little quarter ounce pen. I could curl this pen all night long, all the week long, and I'm not going to build much muscle curling this pen. If I really want to get muscle, I better put some weights you know, on a barbell and curl the barbell. You know, and I've said, be like my son, curling 50 pounds with his little tiny barbell. You know, it's, I can't even pick the thing up with two, two hands, hardly, and he curls the thing. Uh, but, you know, the test is directly related to where we are at. And this is why we have to be careful when we look. If you see somebody who fails a test, you can't judge them because that test might have killed you if you knew every part of that test. And you're going, well, I don't know how that person failed. I don't know how that evangelist, that, that pastor evangelist fell into adultery. Well, he had a lot of attacks. <laughs> he had a lot of attacks that were designed to break somebody of his level, and he fell. What we need to do then is pray for them, encourage them, and, and lift them up in prayer. Same thing we do with anybody in the body who fa fails a test. We encourage them, we lift them up, and we build them up. Why? Now, well, I don't know how you, you know, we don't want to go, well, I don't know how you fell for that test. I'm like, how, how could anybody fail for that kind of a test? Yeah, that doesn't build them up. <laughs> and we come up, you know, I'm really sorry that this has happened. Anything we can do to help you, come on back and God is, God is forgiving. And lift them up. Because he is forgiving. He, know, he knew you were going to fail the test before you even had the test happen. He just wanted to make sure you understood because usually what happens is we feel like we're so strong in an area that we take the guards off that area. And I've said this many times. If there's any area in your life that you feel that you will not fall in, beware because that's exactly the area that you're going to fall in. May not be tomorrow, may not be next week, it may be a year, it may be a decade, but that will be the area that you will fall in because you're going to take the guard off. You're, not, you're going to do things that are stupid. These pastors and, and, and big leaders who fell into adultery, I can almost guarantee you, to one, they probably said, I will never be unfaithful to my wife, ever. And then they would do stupid things like be alone with women. You know, and got away with it for periods of time. And then all of a sudden, something happened. Because they took the guard off their heart. And this is where sin comes in. We take the guard off and sin comes in. And we end up saying, oh, uh, yeah, no, wow, it does look interesting. Eve, standing near the tree of the knowledge of good, the knowledge of good and evil. And my question has always been, what, what was she standing there next to the tree for in the first place? Now, I'm sure the thoughts in her mind were, I wonder why this tree is off limits. I wonder, wonder what it is about this fruit that we can't eat. You know, no sin yet, just, you know, all these other fruit, you know, have you ever had something that you're not supposed to have and that's exactly what you want? <laughs> well, she was putting herself in the right place. I'm sure, I'm sure that's what she was doing. Curious, curious. 
well, why, why aren't we allowed to eat this food? I mean, it really looks good. It doesn't look any worse than the other trees. As a matter of fact, it looks pretty good. Uh, I just don't understand it, God, and walk away and then come back, you know, God, I just don't understand this. Yeah, and it started poisoning your mind. But, you know, tell somebody you can't do something. And the very thing they want to do, the moment they're told they can't do it, is to do it. And I've shared with you, you know, if I was living I would not want a purple house, but the minute I was told I can't have a purple house, I would be seriously considering painting my house purple just to show them that I could paint my house purple. Uh, not that I would want a purple house, but it's, no, I'm not the only type of person out there that says as soon as you're told you can't have it. A doctor gets to with a diabetic, new diabetic and says you've got to cut out all, the majority of your sweets and all of a sudden what do they want? Nothing but sweets. Okay, uh, you've got to, you know, if you want to save your life, you must exercise. And the last thing you want to do is exercise from that point on because you were told you must do it. You know, anything we're told we must do starts immediately in our hearts as, a, as in the human nature to rebel against. You know, some, some greater, some lesser, some, some things are not that. But we have to be careful because we desire the wrong thing so often. And when we go into the middle of a test, the test will be deciding, do you really believe God? Are you going to put your faith in him? There is no temptation overtaking you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful who will provide a way of escape. And that escape is Jesus Christ. We turn to him because the test is designed without Jesus to break us. All right? I keep bringing this up. Every test you go through is designed to break you if you go through it in your flesh. If you walk into the, any test with your flesh, you will fail. You turn to Jesus and you turn to his word, and that's the only thing that will get you through the tests that come your way. And if you're not focused on him, you will be Peter walking on the water, sinking. <laughs> help! And hopefully you're smart enough to ask for help and get picked up. You know, and not go floundering in the water until you until you you know until he's forced to pick you up before you die. You know, and oftentimes that's what we do. We flounder in the water until basically we're dying and he picks us up. So we look at this. They come into this land. Let's come back into Joshua. They come into this land and God says, "Here's your blessings. You're eating of the blessing of the land. No more manna." And can you imagine this first day? These guys have been fed by manna for 40 plus years out in the wilderness, about 41 years. Can you imagine they get up the first morning and there's no manna? You've only eaten manna every day for 40 years. And some quail. Well, probably, they had complained, you know, their, their fathers had complained anyway. Uh, I imagine, now, manna was the perfect food. Now, you know, the, the rabbis say that manna, they, they tell you that manna probably tasted like whatever you wanted it to taste like, which I, I'm not going to get into that. But I can picture that it would be hard to eat the same food every day for 40 years. I worked in the pizza business for many years, and a pizza, no matter what you put in, after a while, every pizza started tasting the same. It didn't matter what toppings you put on it. I worked in a steak place for a year. Now, I love steak. I would have never thought that I would have gotten tired of steak. I got tired of steak. Okay. Now, believe me, I would have, that would have been, if, if any food you could have given me, I would have said, there's no way I could get tired of. That would have been the food. And yet, anything you eat enough of, you'd get tired of. So in one sense, it's probably walking out, no manna. Hallelujah, no manna. <laughs> Until they had to go pick the food, and every recipe they know is manna. How, how do you cook the corn? How do you cook the barley? How do you cook the wheat? How do you cook you know, uh, all these things? You know, you know, there, there's some culture shock in this. And, but you know, that's the same culture shock we have when we walk in the spirit and we start dwelling on spiritual things. You know, have you ever felt out of place amongst the world? Does the world feel all the place around you? Would be probably the bigger question. If not, there's a problem. 
The world should feel out of place with us because our language should be godly. Our thoughts should be godly. Our actions should be godly. They should know that we're different. Not obnoxiously different, but different. When, you know, one of the great things is when you go into a large group and you start saying, that person's a Christian. You know, I used to be able to pick out Christians frequently just because of the spirit and just little things they were doing. When, when I worked at the TA, I used to look for the truckers that would be out front bowing their head with their food. And I'd try to purpose to go out and talk to them for just a few minutes because, number one, I knew they were lonely because they were usually by themselves in that truck all the time. And just spend a few minutes talking to them and encouraging them. You know, be able to pick out Christians. You know, do you feel more at home with Christians or the world? Hopefully it's with Christians. I love to talk about God. Anybody who's around me long enough knows I like to talk about God. At the prison, they, like, they know I like to talk about God. If they want to get a, get a good conversation with me, we talk about God. Uh, and because I was a chaplain, lots of people come to talk to me about God. <laughs> I'm an instructor now, but because I was a chaplain, they know me as chaplain, and they know that I, that I'm, you know, that I love that topic, the Bible. They come with, to me with their Bible questions. They come to me about issues in their life, and I'm able to minister to them. And just sometimes just, just chat. Do the people in your life know that you're a Christian? Does your neighbors know that you're a Christian? Hopefully they do. Yeah. Now our neighbors definitely know we're a Christian for more than one reason. You know, we, we bring it up, but Samuel also made sure that all of our neighbors knew that we were a Christian family. Because uh, he shared the gospel with all of them all around, talking to people about God. That was just who he was. He loved to talk to people. Uh, and have us who he's doing the same thing. Uh, but, you know, are we recognized as people who are different from this world? When people look at us, do they say, okay, may not quite know what's different about you, but you're just weird. <laughs> you know, you're weird. You know, you're, you're, you don't enjoy the same things we do. You're not talking about the same movies and shows we're, we're talking about. You're not talking about the same books we're talking about. All you want to do is talk about this God thing and what your church is doing and and what you did at church and you know, what you learned in the Bible, we just don't understand this. You know, and it's very important that we have this mentality that comes across that says, we are not of this world. We are of heaven. And people should recognize that we're different. Again, not obnoxiously so, because otherwise nobody's going to talk to us, but they should recognize we don't find these things funny. You know, when people in, around me stop they eventually stopped talking, but when I first was learning this, people would go, well, I've got to go home to the ball and chain, and I'd look at the guy, and I'm going, I thought you loved your wife. He goes, well, I do. I'm going, well, why would you look so negatively about your wife? They go, well, I don't know. It's just, just what we say. I'm going, well, you know, go home to your bride or whatever, you know, whatever you want to say, but make sure it's positive. You know, how do we look at things? Are we different from the way the world looks at, at things? You know, do they know that we look at it differently? You know, do we laugh at the same jokes that they laugh at? Do we find their, their humor the, funny when they're making th fun of things that God says is sacred? You know, and there's some things you can make fun of, you know, and I have no problem if it's the right way, but you know, when it comes to a family and, and, and husband and wives, I don't have much humor in that. Especially because Satan is attacking it so much that I have no, no sense of humor in it. Now, I think the church is funny. You know, especially the way we do things. <laughs> you know, I have no problem making fun of the church because we are funny. You know, we're funny even if you just look at it from the Christian point of view, we're funny. You know, which is why I put up all those little, little comic things, you know, just little things just to make people get a little sense of humor. But, you know, I'm not going to make fun of the husband and wife relationship. I'm not going to make fun of the family because Satan is destroying families with that, that process. And so what is it that we're feeding on? Are we feeding on godly stuff or are we feeding on the world? And I've said it many times. When, if you're going to spend a lot of time in the world, you spend an equal amount of time in the, in the Bible to counteract it. If you're studying the cults and other religions and you spend whatever, if you spend three hours in a cult or religion researching their stuff, you spend three hours in the Bible to, to wash out what, you, what you've been brain, you know, learning. Because the word is what changes our mind. The word is what cleanses us. And we need to be in his word. And just the other day I said, you know, if you're watching six hours of television, make sure you're spending six hours in the Bible to make up for all that garbage you're feeding your mind with in the, from the TV. You know, 
But, and, I'm, and I say kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I'm also saying it very seriously. Are we putting enough time in God's word to really change our thinking? Whatever that amount of time might be. Whatever that time might be. All right. Verse four, uh, 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, there stood a man over against him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and said, are you with us or of our, or our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the captain of the host of the Lord. Am, am I now come? And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, what saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose your shoes from off your foot, for the place wherein you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. All right, we see here what's called a Christophany or a Christophany, however you want to say it. I've always heard it Christophany, but I've heard a lot of others say it differently. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. How do we know that this is Jesus? There's a very important term in here that we know that this is Jesus. Joshua fell on his face and worshipped. All right? So we know this isn't an angel. We know that this isn't anybody but God that he's before. Because if you go to the book of Revelation, John falls on his face in front of the elder, and the elder says, get up, I'm, I'm a fellow servant. You don't worship me. One of the reasons we know that Jesus thought of himself as God, because many times it says, and this person fell before him and worshipped him. And a, the only one, especially for a Jew, that needs, is ever to be worshipped is God. So Jesus tacitly, when people say Jesus never claimed to be God, oh, so many places, he accepted worship. All right? right there he's saying, I'm God. Because if he was any Jewish man, he would have said, get your butt off, of, you know, get your face off that ground. I, I am just a man. But he didn't. He, said, he accepted the worship. When he said, before Abraham was, I am, he was saying, I am God. Because he was saying, I am, which was God's title, I am. So Jesus, on many occasions, told the people, I am God. Here we see the picture of Jesus before his incarnation, before he was born, appearing to Joshua. And I kind of like this because what's the first thing he does? Joshua has the same experience Moses has. Take your sandals off. Take your sandals off. You're standing before God. The burning bush is a picture of Jesus, even though it wasn't in the flesh, but it was a picture of Jesus. Other pictures of Jesus that we have in the, in the Bible before the incarnation in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walked with God. They walked with a fleshly being. Jesus Christ appeared to them in the cool of the evenings and talked with them. A picture of Jesus. We see again as we go further in, Abraham, when he was visited by the angels, he worshipped them. He offered a sacrifice and they accepted the sacrifice. It was Jesus that came to him just before Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. And he said, shall we hide from Sodom, uh, from Adam, what we're going, uh, from, from Abraham, what we're going to do? And so we see these pictures. Jacob wrestling with, it says, the angel of the Lord. But we know because of the way that it, trans, uh, that it worked out that he was wrestling with Jesus. And Jesus touched the hollow of his hip and took his so hip out of socket. And said, because he kept asking him, what's, what's, your, what's your name? You know, Jacob goes, I want to know your name. You've got to tell me your name. And he goes, no, you're not going to have my name. Because he was Christ. He was God. You know, we see the pictures of God all through the scriptures. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fourth man in the fire that Nebuchadnezzar said, the fourth is like the Son of God. Because he was the Son of God. Okay. Uh, all through the scriptures, we see these pictures of Jesus being shown to people. Many people, and I'm part of them, believe that Melchizedek was a picture of Jesus when he went to Abraham, and Abraham gave worship to him and gave him a, a tithe of the, the, battle, the battle winnings and, and gave it to him. And Melchizedek said, a priest, without, a priest and king without mother or father and all these other, you know, king of Salem, king of peace. Uh, from Jerusalem, where, God, where Jesus is going to rule from. You know, 
all these pictures of Jesus, and here we see Joshua going out, and he sees Jesus. And the amazing thing about it is the first thing he does is the same thing everybody does when they see Jesus. They fall on their face <laughs> and worship. Now, this is, this is kind of the amazing thing that, you, that we see all through Scripture. God appears, and people recognize that God, God appeared. When Jesus appeared to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, and he falls off his horse and he's blind, and he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What is his question? Who are you, Lord? He knew exactly who it was. He didn't want to admit who it was, but he knew who it was that, was, that he was standing in front of. Jesus, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, who, did, who didn't have his start in negative uh, 4 BC or 4 BC. That's not the beginning of Jesus. Jesus has always been. That was when he got his fleshly body to go forward for him in that point. But he's always been. He's been with the Father for all of eternity past, with the Father through all of eternity future, but just had a body, a human body for a period of time, but he uses that body to appear all through time because he is Jesus. And that's his part of the, the Holy Trinity is to appear in the flesh so that we can interact with God in an easier manner. And here, Joshua stands before him and the first instruction is, you're on holy ground. Why is he on holy ground? Because he's in front of God. <laughs> Wherever God is, is holy. We, as a group of Christians, have made this holy ground because Christ is in us and the Father is in us and the Holy Spirit is in us. So wherever we go, the place is holy because God is there. This is the wonderful thing about being a Christian. We bring God into every situation that we bring in, that we come into. Have you ever had somebody say something, you know, maybe they blaspheme God's name and then they look over at you and you didn't even say a word, but they'll say sorry? You know, they'll say sorry. Why? God brings conviction into their life. I, in all the restaurants I ever worked in, I never had to tell people not, not to use God's name in vain. And you know how many times I had to deal with it? Never. They would not use God's name in vain. Number one, I didn't, so I didn't set the stage for it. And when they did... They would apologize to me even though I didn't tell them they couldn't do it. I just taught them to be professional. And, but the Holy Spirit brings in conviction. When you just come into a room with the Holy Spirit, you're bringing God into a room and it bothers people oftentimes mm -hmm. when, because they want darkness. They don't want the light. They don't want light brought into their life and conviction brought into their life. So you come in with the Holy Spirit shining brightly out of your life, whether you know it or not, because he indwells you if you're his child, and he comes out. And people are very sensitive to that, especially when they're in sin. Have you ever been backslidden in sin and come across a Christian that kind of just makes you like your skin starts crawling? They haven't said a word. They haven't condemned you. But the Holy Spirit is there and you know that you're not where you're supposed to be and all of a sudden, conviction just pours upon you. They haven't said a word. They haven't quoted a Bible verse. They haven't condemned you. Maybe they said, hi, how are you doing today? And you're under conviction. <laughs> because they brought God into your sin, into your darkness. They brought light. Light always penetrates darkness. And we've got to keep this in mind. Light always penetrates the darkness. When God comes into a situation, his light reveals what's hidden in the dark. Always. Because that's what it does. When we turn on the light, it's not, we're not wondering, is the light going to overpower the dark and light this room up? As long as there's electricity getting to the light bulbs and the filament in the light bulb works, the light is going to come on and chase the darkness out of the room. You know, or the outside, when you step outside and, that, and you hit that sensor and the floodlights come on, you know, and all of a sudden it is very bright. You know, if we ever walked out and the lights came on and it stayed dark, we'd have a problem. Okay? 
Darkness never overpowers the light. And it's the same thing in God's kingdom. We may give in to the darkness and put our light under a bushel or hide it under a big clay pot, but the light is still there. And when we walk into a room with God on our side and, and lifting him up and praising him, his presence goes out before us and conviction comes upon people. And this happens so often. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen it. I've seen people actually cringe sometimes even before I've said a word. They may not even know me and I'm just saying hi and you can see it in their eyes. Their eyes are just like something's wrong. They may not even know what's wrong. They may be in the presence of God's spirit for the first time in their life. They don't know what's going on. They just feel uncomfortable because their sin is being illuminated in, by the Holy Spirit and it bothers them. It does. You know, if the world feels comfortable with you, you better examine your relationship with God because there's something wrong. Because the Holy Spirit should be making them uncomfortable. If you, can, if you can remember back when you first got saved, you probably can remember that uncomfortable feeling as the Holy Spirit would be brought into your life. You know, well, this, huh, here's, here's this person. They're going to talk about Jesus again. They're always talking about Jesus. I, I just wish it would go away. Because I feel miserable when they talk about Jesus. But you know, when you're a Christian, you're going, oh, well, let's talk about Jesus. I, I met one guy I worked for when I first moved to, to Kingman, and he goes, well, what are you doing now? And I go, I'm a pastor. He goes, I knew it. You were always, you were always so excited when you talked about God. I said, it's got to be the perfect thing for you. you know, is that something that God, people look at us and say, this person loves God with all their heart? They bring God in. And I, again, I'm not saying you're being obnoxious. But God has to be part of your life in so, so special a way that out of the abundance of your heart, you speak. And, you know, if you really want to start thinking about what is the abundance of your heart, start looking about your, at your conversations. What do I talk about most of the time? What do I spend my time doing? Do I spend my time doing things for God, speaking about God, or do I start spend most of my time speaking and doing other things? And not to get critical to yourself, but spend that time and look at it and say, God, where am I with you? Where should I be? Again, we're not going to spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week talking about God. Uh, for most of us, if you have a job, the, the job would fire you if you did nothing but talk about God for 24-7. But, unless you're a pastor, unless you're a pastor, yes. Uh, if I talked nothing about God at my job, I'd get fired because I'm not paid to talk about God all the time. But people also know that if they want to bring up God and it's not in the middle of a classroom setting, because I've had to tell some people, this is not the time I will talk to you after the class, but this is class. This is time to be talking about education, not, not God. Now, after class, talk to you all you want. <laughs> I'm on break, you're on break, we'll talk about God. What is your topic of conversation most in your life. That'll tell you a lot about where you're at. Here, she was told, worship, take your sandals off. You're in holy ground. You're, you're in front of God. You got to meet God face to face as Moses had met God. And he's going to be given a new direction on how he's supposed to go. He's going to be encouraged by Jesus Christ. You know, this is the amazing thing. When you need Jesus in your life, he will find you if you need him. He'll do what it takes to get in. For us as Christians, it should mean getting into his word on our own. If we don't do it on our own, he'll put some Christian in your path that'll kind of make you want to get into his word or push away even further. Or he'll get somebody that says, well, why don't, you, why don't we come to church? When, when I walked away from church for my period of time, you know, the one that got me back into church was my second oldest son. He came up one Saturday and said, can we go to church tomorrow? You know, and in my mind, I'm going, okay, I have no reason not to go to church. We'll go to church. And we've been back in church every, every Sunday since. You know, now, the funny thing is, he's the one that's not going to church now. <laughs> uh, funny, sad, you know, sad. But we need to be able to say, what will be the encouragement? You never know how you might encourage somebody to come back to God with just a slight word. A simple word. 
You know, I am sure that my son never thought that his, his you know, simple sentence would ever change the direction of, you know, completely change the direction of the family again, and yet it did. If you think back over your life, how many times has somebody said something, just a little something that has changed the direction of your life? The little pebble in the path of the stream that changes the whole direction of the stream. It's sometimes just a little tiny thing. And you don't even know, you might not even know what you've done. You may not even know the blessing that you have until you get to heaven and God says, you did that and look what happened on that person's life. And you're going, God, all I did was talk to him for a couple seconds. And God says, yeah, and you said just the right words. Here's your reward for just a little pebble in the stream that changed the direction of the, of the, of the path. So how are we going to be used by God? Whatever simple ways he, he wants to use us. Too many of us look for the, God, what is the big thing I can do for you? God, I want to be the, the revival speaker or the revival singer, you know, and God is saying, no, I just want you to be the person that says the simple word. I want you to be the person that invites this person to go to church with you. Do you realize that it's statistically shown that it, most people who come to church come because somebody invites them? And even better if, you, better if you go and pick them up and bring them with you? Most people do not just wake up on a Sunday morning and say, I think I'm going to go to church. It does happen. Don't get me wrong. It does happen. But usually most people will start coming to church because somebody they know has invited them and planted the seed in their, in their mind that they should probably go to church or go to a Bible study or whatever it might be. The average person just doesn't wake up and say, I think I'm going to go to Bible study today. I, I haven't been to Bible study in, in three decades, and I'm going to go to Bible study today. That's not usually what happens. <laughs> okay? It's usually somebody, you know, we have really good Bible study. You know, why don't you come with us today? Why don't you come with me tonight? And they might think about coming. And that one invitation might change their entire life. You know, I want to, you know, I want to do something different with my life, so would you come with me? You know, and all of a sudden things are changed. How much is God going to use you if you're just willing to speak up? Just say things. How many people in your life have said something really small that has really affected you? And if you think about it, they probably don't have a clue what they said, either negatively or positively. Sometimes we get really bent out of shape that somebody says just one word that we think they said with a snide attitude. Okay? And maybe they didn't say anything. They just looked at us funny we think. And all of a sudden, we, we're all angry at them because they looked at us funny. They looked at me really mad. They're mad at me for something. I'm, now I'm mad at them. You know, they had just stepped on a rock and they were mad at themselves for stepping on a rock and hurting their foot. And you looked at them at just that time and thinking they were looking at you in, a, in an angry, angry attitude. And now you're mad at them because they're mad at you, you think. And you stay mad at them for three decades because they, because they stepped on a rock and got mad at themselves stepping on a rock and you got mad at them thinking, you know. <laughs> and even if it is a real thing to be mad at, it's still not something to be mad at for decades and years and minutes and hours. We need to learn to be able to forgive and say, God, I'm going to allow your love to flow through me. Help me. Help me learn to forgive. Help me learn to love these people. And we've talked about what forgiveness is, giving up my right to demand their punishment. You know, that's what forgiveness is all about. God, they really hurt me, and they may have really hurt you. But true forgiveness is, God, I don't care if they get punished. I just want you to love them and get, and, and get the victory over them. God, help them. I'm going to forgive them, just as God forgives us. He doesn't come down and says, okay, when you've done enough good things, I will think about giving you my goodness and my forgiveness. Jesus died on the cross because we could not do enough good things to please him. He says, I'm going to die. I'm going to pay the penalty because you can't pay it. You have to be perfect to go to heaven. And God says, you can't do it. You failed. You were born. You failed. You're a sinner from birth and you failed. And he says, I'm going to pay the price so that we can go to heaven. And there's nothing I can do to, to earn heaven. There's nothing I can do to keep heaven. Once I am saved, I am saved. Because God does the work. 
not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his grace, his mercy, he has forgiven us. Not works, not, nothing I can boast in, he does it all. And you know what? I wouldn't want it any other way because if it had to be dependent on me, I'd be in trouble. I'd be in trouble every day because I make enough mistakes every day that I would lose my salvation and go to hell if it depended on me. But it's all about Jesus. He paid the price. We're clothed in righteousness and he gives us everlasting life. Not partial life, not life as long as you can keep it. He gives us everlasting life, eternal life. Because it's him. He does the work. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank the, your, the opportunity to learn about you. And just, Lord, we ask for a great challenge in, in learning to follow you and to see what you would have us to do in each part of our life. And guide us, lead us, give us opportunities to share you with others and help us to be the peculiar people that you want us to be before people, that they will see people that are different from them and wonder why. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.